stand and pray before we go into 1 Corinthians 10. Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for giving us the spirit that he now dwells with every single one of us, that we are now in this new covenant in your blood and we are equipped. We, we are sealed with the spirit, Lord, and that is so beautiful and so good. And I pray, spirit, that as we open your word today, which was inspired by you, that you would speak to each and every single one of us. Lord, we thank you. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. Years ago, I remember looking on the news, and they had a little segment, and they were talking about how veterans that came from combat, they, came, they seen combat overseas, they came back home to civilian life, and there's this interesting phenomenon where they kind of thought that, and I don't know how often this happens, to whom this happens, but there's this phenomenon where some veterans, after they have seen combat, they, they come back to the civilian life and they begin to engage in risky behaviors, doing things that are dangerous because they think that, well, if I survive combat, if I survived you know, a war zone where people are actively trying to kill me, then I, when I'm here and safe in America, I'm fine, right? There, there's nothing that can hurt me. And they kind of develop a false sense of security. They feel like they're invincible. Again, I don't know how often this happens, if this happens to everyone. But we see this logic, don't we, in all of us, right? This isn't just unique to veterans. We all have this. And oftentimes, we as people, we will develop a false sense of security based on something that happened in our past. In fact, we see this happen in the Bible. When Israel had left Egypt... And they entered into the wilderness, and this is exactly where Apostle Paul picks up in 1 Corinthians 10. So let's read 1 Corinthians 10, starting with verse 1. Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, that's the, the Israelites that left Egypt, were all under the cloud. The cloud is God's glory, God's presence physically there in the wilderness with them. All passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. <clears throat> Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. 
No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless... He's talking about communion. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? There is one bread, and we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that with the pagan sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This is the word of God that we're going to be looking at today. And just to give you a background, what is going on? We talked about two weeks ago, right? Not making other people stumble in these gray areas. And what was happening is there were people in the church of Corinth who were going to pagan temples and eating those sacrificial meals. They were participating in those meals. And in chapter 8, Paul said, hey, don't do it because if someone sees you, another Christian, they might be tempted to do the same and they're going to eat it as if it's truly to an idol. They're going to stumble. And now in chapter 10, he comes out like full black and white and says, and by the way, another reason why you shouldn't do it is because it's just wrong. You cannot participate with demons. You cannot participate in, in, in ceremonies and feasts, right, of other religions, the worship of other gods, even if you're a Christian and you're, right? Because what happened is the Corinthians, some of them were thinking they were safe, right? I'm participating in the table of the Lord, right? I'm, I'm drinking his blood. I'm eating his bread. I'm in him. I'm abiding in him. And I'm saved. These aren't real gods. I can participate in these meals. This doesn't mean anything. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Wait, wait, wait. Those are not real gods, they're, they're demons. There's demons behind these idols. You're not safe just because you're partaking of the Lord's cup, right? You're not safe because you're just partaking of communion. He says, I don't want you to have communion with Christ and with demons. In fact, you can't. And he brings up the nation of Israel as an example. Because notice he says that they too ate the bread and drank from the rock which is Christ. We know in John 6 that the bread that the Israelites received, right, the heavenly manna in the wilderness for 40 years, that that bread was actually a foreshadow of the body of Christ, the bread from heaven, who is Jesus Christ. John 6, right, that he comes and he gives us spiritual life. They were partaking, quote unquote, in Christ. That was their own, you could say, symbolic communion in the desert. And he says, and they were drinking from the rock, which is Christ, a.k.a. his blood right so they were they had their own communion he's saying they were partaking in Christ in the wilderness just like you're partaking in communion today and yet 
He says, nevertheless, most of them still fell. Most of them still fell. And verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Desiring evil while feeling safe. There were people in the Corinthian church that thought, well, I'm in Christ. I can do anything I want, right? I can go and sin. As long as I'm in Christ, I'm abiding in Christ, I can do whatever I want. I can eat meals devoted to other gods. But the word of God clearly warns us, no, you can't. Church, we are called to not desire evil. Just because we are in Christ, just because we are saved by God, does not mean we now have a license to go and sin and live whatever way we want and do whatever we want and indulge in our sinful desires. We can't. And sometimes our twisted logic tells us that it is okay. It's okay. I'm in Christ. He'll forgive me. It's fine, right? That's not the way the Bible teaches us to think. That's not the way the Bible teaches us to live. It says, do not desire evil. Verse 7 says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. Verse 8, do not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. Verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did. He says, look at this example. We ought not to follow their steps. Why should we not desire evil? The word of God gives us that answer because there are real consequences. They indulged in sexual immorality and 23,000 fell in a single day. They put Christ to the test and were destroyed by the serpents. They grumbled and they were destroyed by the destroyer. Although they were under the cloud of God. Think about this. They were literally in the the closest place of God's presence on earth there at that moment, they saw the glory and the power of God active right there in front of them. I mean, just imagine the terrifying sight of this, of this column of smoke and fire miles and miles high and just that power there. They miraculously went through the Red Sea. They were baptized into Moses. They ate God's food for 40 years, miraculous food. They drank from a rock, the driest thing possible. And all of these things happened to them, and yet they were still destroyed because they desired evil. We cannot desire evil, church. We got saved, but that is not a license to sin. That's not, this is not Old Testament teaching that we no longer need to follow. No, this is the New Testament teaching us to not desire evil. And this leads us to our first two main points today. The first one is, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. This is verse 12. If there's anyone that should have felt safe, right? It was the Israelites in the Old Testament. God just saved you from being slaves to an oppressive nation way more powerful than you for hundreds of years, right? You had no hope of escape. You and your children and your children's children, for all you knew, would be slaves for the rest of your lives if they didn't kill you, right? 
And then God comes in with 10 powerful plagues, just completely destroys Egypt's economy and military and everything. The whole, the whole nation collapses right before your eyes, not because you had some strategy, not because you were so smart and strong and trained and had a plan, but because of just God's grace. You come to the Red Sea, you think there's no escape, you're about to be destroyed, and then God opens up the sea. You can't believe it as you're walking through it. You come through, and all of them went through it, right? It wasn't just Moses that walked through it. Every single Israelite seen the water come apart. Every single one of them walked through it. They were baptized, so to speak. They seen God's own presence, and they seen God destroy the Egyptians, and it's almost like all of that for them, became a license. Something that allows you to do something, to do whatever they want to do. In a sense, they were like some of those combat veterans who thought they'd seen it all and that they were invincible, that nothing can touch them anymore. And they felt so surrounded by favor that they unrightfully assumed that they can now do whatever they want to do and there will be no consequences. That they can desire evil, they can indulge in sexual morality, and they can grumble, and they can worship other idols, and they can get away with it because we're so blessed. We're so favored, right? And this is what verse 12 warns us against, against that prideful self-reliance. What Paul is saying is if you think you're standing, and by standing he doesn't, you could add the phrase, on your own. Obviously, he's not talking about standing in Christ. He's talking about on your own. He's saying, if you think you're standing on your own, then be careful or else you will fall. That's what the word of God is warning us here. You see, it's so easy in, when, in this life to start trusting in our own self and our own good circumstances even when, get this, even when those good circumstances were brought about not by us, they had nothing to do with me and my good deeds and my power and my strength and my wisdom, but it was purely by the grace of God. It's so easy for us to switch into trusting not God, but just those good circumstances. When everything is great and smooth in life, it's easy, church, that's just who we are naturally as people to forget the God who has produced these favorable circumstances. It's easy to switch to prideful, and we'll never describe it that way. We'll never admit it to ourselves that way, but prideful self-reliance, right, on myself. And we will reassure ourselves that just as things have been going well this entire time, they will continue to go well no matter what. But the word of God warns us. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. In fact, pride is so bad that the Bible basically guarantees that we will end up falling if we think that we are making our own selves stand. If we are convinced that we ourselves, we're good, right? I'm good. I've got this life thing figured out. We're safe. We're secure. I've built for myself a future that things will continue like this no matter what. Oh, I'll, and even if bad things happen, I'll figure it out. I've got friends. I've got a brain. I've got finances, whatever it is that we tell ourselves. I just want to warn all of us. 
to be very, very afraid. Because that kind of attitude directly leads to a fall, as the Word of God warns us. Why? Why does it lead to a fall? Because in reality, church, in reality, we are incapable of sustaining our own selves spiritually. Amen? We can't do that. We can't uphold ourselves spiritually in our pride. We think, well, I've learned my lessons, right? I'm smart now. I've figured it out, like, right? I'm not going to repeat my mistakes. We overestimate ourselves, and we underestimate what the world can throw at us, can still throw at us. But in reality, church, we cannot sustain. We cannot uphold our own selves. John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever lives or remains abides in me and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You know, branches, they don't work like this. It grows and then you cut it off and you take it home and it, you know, it starts bearing fruit, right? You can't separate the branch ever from the vine. As soon as you do, it begins the process of dying. We cannot bear fruit without the vine and the root bringing the water and the nutrients up to the branch. We can't. Yes, we bear the fruit, but it's not of ourselves. And it's wild because even Jesus didn't have an attitude of self-reliance. When he lived here, look at how he spoke. John 5, 19, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. Just complete and utter dependence upon God. It takes humility, church, to admit that I can still fall. I can still fall if not for the grace of God. And I love this, this word right here, take heed, that verse 12 says. In Greek, the root word is related to literally the word watch or like look, right? Something with vision. It, it, he's saying, watch out for fear that you will fall. If you feel like you've slipped into a state of relaxation, a state of security and safety, thinking that everything will be good just because, just because. You know, it's like it's holding, imagine in this life we're holding up this shield and it's metal and it's heavy, right? And you're holding, you're like, oh, do I really got to hold it up? Like, I mean, nothing's bad happened in a while, right? I, I could probably let it down a little bit, right? It's so tempting to let our guard down. It's so tempting to say, why do I need to watch? Like, nothing bad has happened. I think, I think I'll be good, right? I can, I, can, I can put it down a little bit. I urge you, church, take heed. The Bible constantly warns us to be watchful. It's all over the New Testament. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 1 Corinthians 16.13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Matthew 24.42, therefore stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Matthew 26.43, 41, watch and pray that you may not enter 
into temptation. We as Christians, church, I'm here to remind us that we are meant to live our lives watchfully. All of us. This isn't for the super Christians. It's for every Christian. And I'm not, there's place for rest. There's place for Sabbath in the Lord. There is. I'm not saying we need to be constantly just walking around tense, right? Like never relaxing. That's a sermon for a different time, right? About rest in God and Sabbath. And there's a balance but a, but, this, but a pattern in our lives should be a pattern of watchfulness, right? Being on guard. Why? Why? Because at the, if you look at the core Christian beliefs of what the Word of God declares to us, we learn and we see that we still live in a broken and sinful world, don't we, church? This world is still broken. This world is sin, still sinful. And who does the Bible say is the ruler of this world today? Who is it, church? Satan, the devil, right? He is the prince of the power of the air, the word of God says. This is his kingdom. We're on enemy territory right now. And he says that he is like a roaring lion prowling around, seeking someone to devour. He doesn't, this, that passage is addressed to Christians. It's a warning to us, not just to unbelievers. Church, we're not home yet. We're not home. We're behind enemy lines. We're gathering in this little base, right, to to meet with one another. Part of the resistance against the prince of the power of the air of this world to encourage one another in the good fight. But we're not home. We're not home. We're not meant to relax, to, to just, you know, let our guard down. We have been saved by God's good grace, but we're not in heaven yet. Our enemy is still at large in heaven, church. In heaven, we will let our guard down. When we walk through those gates, when we step into the presence of God, there we're going to throw that shield down. We're going to throw it away. We're never going to need it ever again in heaven. But until then, we must take heed. We must watch. Amen? So, that's the first point. The second point, you might be listening to all this and thinking, I was relaxed before, but now I'm terrified. Now, I don't know how long I can hold my shield for. It's heavy. I'm genuinely worried that now there's no way for me to not fall, right? Is it even possible with the enemy being so strong And this is why the Word of God gives us the very next verse, right after that, verse 13, the second main point. Paul says, right right after he says, don't be proud and trust in yourself, watch, don't relax, verse 13 says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Right? So there's two extremes. There's two wrong reactions that we can have. The first one is prideful self-reliance. I got this. I'm safe. I'm so favored. I'm so blessed. I don't need to do anything. I can pursue all my evil desires. Prideful self-reliance, which leads to the fall. And the second one is 
fearful self-reliance, right? It's being so overwhelmed by all the dangers in this world that we think there's no way, there's no way I will be able to stand. I'm too weak, I'm too small. Temptation is too powerful. And it's easy, right, to go from one extreme to the other, feeling great and invincible to just completely defeated, right? It, it, it's hard, right, to get that right balance. It's like playing cornhole, you know, with the, with the board and you've got to throw the little sacks. It's easy to overthrow it and it's easy to throw so lightly that it never reaches the board. But the truth is somewhere in the middle. It's easy in the second version to say, wow. I'll never stand. I'll never be able to do the right thing, right? How can I ever endure until the very end without failing? How can I resist the world, the devil, my own flesh? I'm done, right? Woe is me. And in fact, we could fall into despair and hopelessness at the thought of how difficult this life is spiritually. And perhaps, not perhaps, I know, that many of you sitting here are there already. You're already there. You're already in that pit. And you feel like you, you haven't been standing in years, right? You've just been fallen and you've just been laying there this entire time. And you feel like all you can do is just remain fallen. You've gotten so used to falling into sin that you feel like there is no other option than to fall. I know I'm committing sin now, and I know that even if I repent and I cry out to God and I pray, tomorrow I'm going to do the same exact thing. There is no escape. You're stuck in option number two. In fact, you might have given up on the idea of even getting back up because you know that you're still going to end up falling, right? And it hurts so much to fall from a tall place that I would much rather just stay down. That way, when I do fall, the fall doesn't even hurt as much because that way I'm not even getting my hopes up. Maybe you've given up on getting up at all together. Just, no, this is it. This is my new normal. But brothers and sisters, church, this is not the way we as Christians ought to live, and I'm here to tell you that from the Word of God Things don't need to stay this way. You do not need to keep falling. It is not a guarantee that you will continue to fall. Your past failings are not a guarantee that you will fall again today. God doesn't want us to be proud and rely on our own selves, thinking we can stand our own, on our own, but God also does not want us to despair, looking at our own weaknesses and our own failures. Because at the root of all that is what? What's the common denominator between both of these? Self-reliance. And God doesn't want that. No matter how it looks, whether it's the positive or the negative version of self-reliance, both of those are sinful. So let's go through verse 13, phrase by phrase. It says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Essentially, what is he saying? He's saying, your struggle, whatever it is that you're going through, the temptations you're facing, there's nothing new here, right? And that's not meant to discourage you like, oh, you're so weak, everyone else is doing it right. No, he's saying, you are not experiencing some unique breed of temptations that other people cannot overcome, 
right? We can't use like, well, everyone else, it's easier for everyone else. No, there's other people that have gone through the same exact temptation that all of us have, and yet probably even stronger forms of that temptation, and they came out victorious, right? It's, it's not uncommon. It's not unendurable. And then he goes on to say, God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. And here, we actually have a promise of God. And church, the promises of God, they are precious. And we as Christians, we ought to hold them near and dear to our hearts. The promises of God, they are worth more than any gold or money or anything valuable in this world. The promises of God are better than anything ever. They are precious to our souls. Hold fast to them. God knows exactly who each and every single one of us are. Just think about your life, right? Who you are, where you've come from, your abilities, your skills, your, your problems, insecurities, all of this whole cluster, right? Who you are. God knows each of us through and through to the very last detail. And, what, and he knows the extent of our abilities. He knows the abilities and their limits. He knows it completely, even though we might not know it. And he has given us a guarantee. He's given us a literal promise that he will never let us be tempted beyond our limits. Ever, church. This is great news. This is amazing news. We will never be tempted beyond our ability. That's what the Word of God says. And you know why he won't let that happen? The word of God gives us the answer because he is faithful, not because we are strong, right? Because we are great and we need to believe more in our own selves and stand in the mirror, but because God is faithful and that's never changing. God's faithfulness is incorruptible. God cannot deny himself. And based on his own faithfulness, based on the unchanging nature and character of God, he is giving us a promise for us while we are here behind enemy lines, facing temptations, fighting the good fight. He says, child, I will never allow you to be tempted beyond your ability because I am a good, good Father, I am guaranteeing it. Because God is faithful, you have never, I have never experienced or will ever experience temptation that is beyond our personal abilities. Church, that's wild. This, just think about that. Think about every temptation you've ever had. And every temptation you will ever have, none of them will ever go beyond our ability. Not because we are great, but because God is faithful. And I understand that often, I remember reading a joke that says, the problem with temptation is that it's so good, right? I know that when we are being tempted, it feels so strong, doesn't it? It feels, the gravity of it is so intense. 
It feels so powerful and so persistent that we, we doubt that it's truly endurable, right? We think, well, there's no way you could overcome this kind of temptation. I mean, it's, it's like magnets, you know, that you, you kind of start moving them closer and you kind of feel that tug a little bit and you move them closer, closer. And then, and then at one point, Boom, you know, they, they, they come together because it feels inevitable that, that you can't stop them coming together. And it, that's how we feel about our temptations, don't we? That at one point, they're just so strong, you cannot endure them. And yet the word of God tells us the opposite. It says there's a promise that God is promising based on his own faithfulness that you will never experience temptation that is beyond your ability The word of God isn't, by the way, it's not saying that every temptation will be easy. That's not what it's saying. It's saying it will be endurable. If we feel, let's say we're being tempted, right? If we feel in our hearts that this temptation is too strong, I can't fight it anymore, it's impossible for me to overcome I'm just going to give up. I'm going to give into this. If we feel that, if we can like hit pause, the pause button in that moment, right? You and your temptation, and in and, and that moment when you say, I can't overcome this, it's too strong. Maybe before I could have, but at this point, the magnets are too close. That's it, I'm done. If you pause that, and you had a spiritual x-ray into our hearts at that moment, you know what you would find? You would find at the root of that feeling, at the root of that thought that we tell ourselves that I cannot overcome this is a lack of belief in the faithfulness of God. That's what that is. At the root of so much of our sin, and some would argue at the root of all of our sin, first and foremost is unbelief. Unbelief in God, unbelief in the goodness of God, in the faithfulness of God, in the grace of God, in the power of God. We don't believe in that moment when I said, this is too strong for me. I don't believe that God is truly faithful. I don't believe that he's truly good. I don't believe that I'm being tempted not beyond my ability, but within my ability. I don't believe that he's going to take care of me, that he loves me. Sun Tzu, in The Art of War, said, every battle is won or lost before it is ever fought. This wisdom, it emphasizes the importance of preparation before battle, right? It's how well prepared are you for the battle. If you are unprepared and unsupplied, undisciplined, untrained, you have already lost the battle before you even began. It's only just a matter of time until all of it plays out in history, right? And the same thing happens to us when we are not rooted in the faithfulness of God. If we don't actually believe that God is faithful, like faithful, faithful, like a rock, an unshakable, unchanging rock. If I don't believe that he is faithful to never allow temptations beyond my ability, then we have already lost before the battle begins. We've already lost. That's how the devil plays 4D chess with us, right? Right? 
He's got the temptation that he's dangling in front of you. But before he goes in with that in your heart, he's already making you believe that it's impossible to overcome, that God isn't faithful. Did God truly say that every single temptation will be endurable? Did he really say that? Is that actually true? He goes in with that first, and then we take the bite, trying to resist temptation without firmly holding fast to the faithfulness of God in our temptation is like trying to build this huge, beautiful house on the beach, right? You can start. You can put in a lot of hard work. You can sweat, right? And you can make a lot of progress. But when the tide comes in, it's just going to wash all that sand out from under your house, and it's going to all come crashing down. Jesus said that if you hate your brother, you've already committed murder. He said, if you look at a person with lust, you've already committed adultery. And I would add that if you do not believe in your heart that God is faithful to never allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, you have already lost. You've already given into that temptation. But look at what the Word of God tells us. But with the temptation... He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God, in his faithfulness, provides a way of escape with each temptation. Like I've said before, temptation and the way of escape, they come in pairs, right? Imagine you go for a walk in your neighborhood park, right? And you're going for a walk. It's beautiful, perfect weather, and all of a sudden, you hear some barking in the distance. And you turn around, and you look, and there's a pit bull charging at you. Its owner is nowhere in sight. And, you, and you're far away from everything. You're not on a bicycle. You, you understand this is going to get really ugly right now, right? Well, in this case, God is that friend that's standing at a distance, and he's always watching over you, and he sees you. And you know what he does? As soon as he sees that happening, he throws you a pepper spray. Right? He throws you a pepper spray, lands near you, you can pick it up, and you can just neutralize the dog right then and there. Right? That's what God does. Every pit bull, for every pit bull, there's a pepper spray that you can use to defend yourself, to escape. Right? He is our faithful friend. He's always there. He's always got that can of pepper spray to share with us. But, church, we have to look to him. We can't be so paralyzed by the fear of the dog about to destroy us that he throws us the can and it lands behind us and we don't even realize it, right? And we start trying to fight it on our own without using the way of escape that God has provided to us. Do we look to God in our temptations or are we just trying to helplessly fight this pit bull off which is way stronger than we are? Are we so overwhelmed by fear? that we don't notice what God provides to us. God will always provide a way, a way of escape with every single temptation. Every single temptation, church. You could face another million temptations in your life, and with every temptation, there will be a way of escape. He will provide. In Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, remember, at the very end, he says, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And you know, he's not just talking about 
providing for us physically. I'll give you food. No, no, that also includes today's and tomorrow's temptations. He says, don't be anxious about tomorrow's temptations, about what's, what's in store for you tomorrow, right? The enemy wants us to think about tomorrow's temptation and the day after and the day after and how will I ever stand? How will I ever overcome this tsunami of temptations that I'm going to face in my life? It's overwhelming, isn't it? But God says, don't be anxious. Just stop thinking about it. Focus on today. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Trust in me. I am faithful. I will provide a way of escape each and every single time. As I call the band up, whenever I feel overwhelmed by the thought of the amount of temptations I'm going to face in my own life, right? Just the, the slew of temptations every day coming at us wave after wave, wave after wave. They feel like they're inexhaustible, right? I love going back to Jude 24. It's a short epistle. It's one chapter. and the 24th verse, it says he's praising God at the end of his epistle. And he says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And he goes on to worship him. God is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before his presence in the place that we all long to be, our heavenly home, with great joy. I need to remember that God is keeping me, not me. I'm not providing the way of escape for myself. It's God. John 4.4 says, for he who is in you, the Spirit of God, is greater than he who is in the world. John 5, 4 says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What is it, church? Our faith. Our faith, our belief in the faithfulness of God. That's what helps us overcome. Not faith in ourselves, but faith in God. Church, we don't just get saved by faith as a one-time event, like, oh, yeah, I remember that one day I believed in God, and that's it. No, no, faith in God and faith in his faithfulness, his unchanging nature and his goodness is what sustains us. It upholds us until the very end and makes us, presents us blameless before his presence. Corey Ten Boom was a Christian woman who was in the Nazi concentration camp for wanting to protect Jews. And she said, when I was a little girl, I said, I went to my father and said, Daddy, I'm afraid that I will never be strong enough to be a martyr for Jesus Christ. Tell me, said father, when you take a train trip, to Amsterdam. When do I give you the money for the ticket? Three weeks before? No, Daddy. You give me the money for the ticket just before we get on the train. That's right, said my father. And so it is with God's strength. Our Father in heaven knows when you will need the strength to be a martyr for Jesus Christ, and he will supply 
all that you need just in time. Church, this is the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God. Let our faith rest in the power and the faithfulness of God who will sustain us and bring us into his presence and into his glory. He will provide for us every time, just in time. Amen? Let's pray. We're going to give a minute of just quiet reflection. Where are you on that spectrum? Are you in that pride, proudful self-reliance, thinking things are going to stay good like this all the time and you are free to do what you please, to desire evil? Do you need to repent of that? Or are you just so overwhelmed and crushed by the power of this world, by the power of the devil and your own temptations that you've given up hope? Rest in the faithfulness of God. Father, I thank you that you are faithful. You're so, so good. And I pray, Lord, for those that don't even know you, Lord, that they would, they would come to know who you are and how beautiful you are, how great life truly is with you, that they would be freed from their own Egypt, from their own sin that holds them captive, that they are utterly powerless to free themselves from. Miraculously, that you would save them, bring them through the sea, Lord, and lead them to the promised land, sustaining them every day with your bread with your water until all of us, Lord, stand before your presence blameless and with great joy. In Jesus' name, amen.